Philippians chapter 1, and we'll begin reading from verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. We're getting to that time of year again when people start to get ready for Christmas. Um, in our home group last week, there was talk of mince pies being back in the shop and a few people had already bought some. And I was talking to my brother-in-law a couple of days ago and he was saying that Spar had an offer on Schler and he'd bought 24 bottles to make sure he didn't run out. <laughs> some of you may have already started to think about your Christmas cards, how many you're going to write this year and who you're going to send them to. I can remember back when I was very young, I was sent up to my granny's house to help her write all of her Christmas cards. And she had about 80 people that she wanted to write them to. It was a crazy number. So she needed help. And most of these people I didn't know. And whenever I didn't know somebody, of course, I just wrote exactly what she told me to write. I was very formal and very proper and very standard in the Christmas card. But eventually, we got round to my parents, to my sisters, and to some of my aunts and uncles. And because I knew them so well, I immediately went completely off script and started writing absolute nonsense. Uh, it was all happy Easter and full of spelling mistakes deliberately and all of this. And unfortunately, my granny saw one of these cards and I can still remember shouting, her shouting over to my aunt, He's ruined all my good Christmas cards. So, needless to say, the next year I wasn't asked back to help my granny write any more cards. It's a situation that shows we have a very different way of writing when we're writing to someone formally compared to writing to someone that we know. We will write in a completely different style depending on the occasion. If you're writing a letter, of complaint or a letter to your bank manager, you won't write the same way as if you're writing a holiday postcard to a friend. When we read the book of Philippians, you can tell that the words used in this passage, that Paul is very familiar and very friendly with the Philippian church. This is not a letter 
written as an official complaint. This is not a letter written from one stranger to another. He has an excellent relationship with the Philippians, and it's obvious that he holds them in very high regard. And he is pleased with their progress as a church. The book of Philippians is a letter of thanksgiving and encouragement. In verse 3, Paul states he thanks God every time he remembers them. In verse 5, he considers them partners with him. Paul holds them in his heart in verse 7, and he yearns in affection for them in verse 8. The letter of Philippians is a letter between friends, a letter of fellowship. We can see that there is a close spiritual bond here between this church and Paul. While they are separated by distance, they are nonetheless partners through the gospel. They have, been, they have kept in contact with each other. They have kept praying for each other and they've kept supporting each other. Paul at this time was in prison in Rome. Before this letter was written, a member of the Philippian church called Epaphroditus had been sent to Paul to bring him gifts from the church while he was in prison. Paul notes this at the end of chapter two, that Epaphroditus had fallen ill, but he had recovered enough to be able to return back home with this letter. More than that, Later in Philippians, in chapter 4, verse 15 and verse 16, Paul states, When I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except only you. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So you can see the care between Paul and the church. Not only spiritual care, but also their physical actions, visiting, providing help, sending gifts, and maintaining correspondence. There was much more than just words of encouragement between Paul and the Philippian church. The Philippians got actively involved in helping Paul when he needed it. We should seek to imitate this in our own church. We should be promoting connections and fellowship to the missionaries and other Christian churches around us. We should make sure that we are actively praying for other churches and other Christians that are in need. Our church should not be its own little insular club where we do what we do and we ignore everything else around us. We're not competing against other Christian churches. We're not in competition with other Christian clubs or organizations. The opposite is true. We should be supporting and helping them when we see that they have need. I used to work as a company and I was part of a small team and there were several of similar teams on my floor. We would compete with each other for funding to do our projects. So when we would have a private meeting, my manager would always stress just that we couldn't tell anyone else what we were doing. And as we were walking back to our desks, he would always say to us, hands around the homework, boys, hands around the homework. And that he was telling us to be quiet and not to say to anyone else what we were doing in case they stole some of our project ideas. In all honesty, it was a really terrible way to run a business, but it's also a terrible way to run a church because the church is not the building. It's not our own little separate gathering, but God's church is every Christian. 
united by the gospel, united by our salvation in Jesus Christ. God does not want us to isolate ourselves from other Christians, no matter where we are geographically, no matter the distance between us. If we trust in the same gospel, then we are part of the same church. Jesus, before he was crucified, prayed for unity among Christians, saying this in John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. And in Romans chapter 12, verse 5, it says, In Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We should really make sure that we continue to talk to Christians from other churches, to ask them how their church is doing, to ask them what their church is doing, and to make sure that we are praying for our missionaries, events, and outreach in other churches as well as our own. The more unified that we can be as Christians, then the more we can help each other out and work with each other and pray for each other, then we can give more glory and praise to God together. Paul is able to have such a close relationship with the Philippian church because of what is said in verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The good work talked of in this verse is the outpouring of the gospel in their lives. The Philippians have been saved by Jesus from the punishment of their sins. This salvation is complete and absolute. They can't lose their salvation. That is why Paul says he is sure it will be brought to completion. He can be sure because Jesus' promise to us in John chapter 6 verse 37 reads, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Once we are saved, no one can take our salvation from us because God is in control of it. God is faithful to us and he will faithfully complete his work of salvation in us. It is his gift of grace to us and no one else can take it away. Of course, Christians are still capable of sinning and as the verse states that the work will not be completed until the day of Jesus Christ. But if we profess to be Christians, then we profess to having the gift of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And that should lead to a conscious change in our attitudes and our actions in everyday life. This is what Paul was looking for in Galatians chapter 4 that we read earlier. And he was perplexed when he could not see the change in the believers' lives. This is explained in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, which says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. So we see that God's Spirit should begin a change in us as Christians, a new way of looking at things, a good work. 
It is explained in this verse that the presence of the Holy Spirit in a believer is absolute. If you have genuinely asked Christ to forgive your sins, then he will be with you, and the presence of the Holy Spirit will begin a change in your attitude. This is because after we understand how abhorrent and hurtful sin is to God, and we ask Jesus to forgive our sins, we should not want to hurt or offend God any longer. That is made clear in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, that our sin is personally hurtful to God, as it says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed on the day of redemption. We often take a dull view of the true effects of sin, but we see here that our sin will actively grieve God, that our sin brings forth such a strong negative emotion in the one who created us and sustains us, and that should be a sobering thought to us. If you had a friend or a family member who you love, and they've spent a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of effort to support you and to help you, then you don't want to treat them badly. You don't want to deceive them or double-cross them. You don't want to act in a way that will hurt them or cause them any distress. We should view our sin as having the same effect on God, and that may help to put into perspective the true nature of our sin and the results of our actions. Instead of that, we are to let our love abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that we may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus. Instead of living lives of sin and shame that causes pain and suffering, we should be filled with the fruit of righteousness. In verses 22 and 23 of Galatians chapter 5, we read, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. As Christians, this is how we should aim to live. This is what the Holy Spirit should be encouraging in our lives. And the reason that these are the fruits of the Spirit is because these are all attributes that reflect God's character and show who he truly is. If you have a hero, someone you look up to and respect, you will try to be like them. You'll start acting like them. You, you'll start talking like them. You may even start dressing like them. How many young boys wanted, not only, the, wanted only the football jersey of the football team that they supported? And for many young boys, it wasn't just the specific football jersey that they wanted, but they had to have the right name on the back and the right number of their favorite player. No other football jersey would do. It had to be the right one. It had to be their favorite player. They wanted to be exactly the same as them. In much the same way, if we respect God, then we want to become more like him. And the Bible shows us plainly that all the attributes that are mentioned as fruits of the Spirit are attributes of God. God is love. We see this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, where it says, Anyone who does not love 
does not know God because God is love. God is a God of joy. First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 27 says, Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Of peace, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, we are given the prophetic description of Jesus, and he is called the Prince of Peace. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33, we are told, For the Lord is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Of patience, Psalm 86, verse 1, says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Of kindness, Titus chapter 3, verse 4, says, But when the kindness of God our Saviour and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Of goodness, Psalm 86, verse 5 says, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive, and abundant in loving kindness for all who call upon you. Then of faithfulness, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 tells us, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Of gentleness, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And we see self-control from Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, while he endured his temptations. He was tempted by hunger, thirst, power and glory, and yet these ungodly temptations required self-control from him to resist. These are the fruits of the Spirit. They're not just a random collection of nice traits to have, but this is a very deliberate list that provides a reflection of the attributes of God. After all, if we have God, the Holy Spirit, living in our hearts, helping and influencing us, will we not naturally grow to be more like him? And it should be visible to everyone we meet that these changes are present and happening in our lives. Matthew chapter 7, verses 17 to 20 explains, By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Anybody who is watching us as we work and as we socialize and we, as we just live our daily lives, they should be able to see these characteristics in us, these fruits of the Spirit, these fruits of righteousness. And that should be a witness to everyone around us that our faith is genuine and God really is doing a good work in our lives. As Christians, we should be examining our own lives, making sure that we do not fall into temptation and grieve the Spirit, making sure that we listen to the Spirit instead 
and we foster his influence in our lives by regularly reading God's word, praying and thinking about our faith and about the things of God. As Paul says from verse 9, we should strive so that our love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. As Christians, we also need to be supportive of each other and generous with our time and resources. But we should acknowledge that this also means that we should be open about our needs to others and be willing to accept help and generosity when it is given to us. It's all well and good to say that Christians should help each other, but how can that happen if we refuse any help that we are offered? Part of being a church is sharing our burdens with each other. God's want, God wants us to bring our problems to him in prayer, not only as individuals, but as a church. But how can the church pray for your problems if you don't share your problems with anyone in the church? We are restricting our fellowship with each other if we refuse help from our church. Finally, I just wanted to recognize that this letter written by Paul was written to a church of Christians. It's clear from the language that Paul is writing to people that he expects to already be believing Christians. Sometimes we would say born-again Christians to distinguish them from people who would say that they are culturally Christian, who might believe in some form of God, but don't think it's really necessary to make a big deal out of salvation or of being saved or of having to change your life to be a Christian. There is a dire misunderstanding here that Christianity is just some sort of a nice message of how to live better, some good advice that a few people take too far. That is not the case. Paul is clear here that there is something much deeper and much more important going on than just a bit of good advice. There is an event mentioned twice in this passage. That is the day of Jesus Christ. This is in verses 6 and 10. It's clearly something important because it is when the good work will be completed and it is when the Philippians will be pure and blameless. This day is judgment day when God will judge us all for our sins. On that day, if we are judged to be innocent, we will live forever in heaven with God. But if we are judged to be guilty, then we will have to be punished by being separated from God forever in hell. This is not something that we can be taken lightly, and it's not something that can be put off or ignored, because we will be judged on our lives. So once we are dead, it will be too late to do, to, to do anything to fix it. From the passage, we see the Philippians will be considered pure and blameless. This is not because they lived really good and decent lives, but it's because in verse 11, of the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. No Philippian that was written to here could get into heaven because he was good enough. Not even Paul the apostle could get into heaven because he was good enough. They had all sinned and all fallen short of God's standard. They would be guilty on the day of judgment, as will all of us, 
the only thing that saves them is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is where their hope lies. But this righteousness must be asked for. We have to realize that our sin is a betrayal of the holy God who created us and that the only way to be forgiven for that betrayal is to ask Jesus to take our punishment on the cross so that when he died, he not only took the punishment for the sins of the Philippian church and the sins of Paul, but for our sins as well. Only then can we be seen as pure and blameless on the day of Jesus Christ because our punishment will have already been paid for by his death on the cross. Living good lives will not save anyone, but once we have asked Jesus to save us and we receive the Holy Spirit in our heart, then we should want to live in a way that pleases God in a life full of the fruits of the Spirit because we ha should have full assurance of our faith and our salvation.